We're turning to the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. It's, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament of the Bible. It's about three quarters of the way through. It comes after Matthew, after Mark. Luke, chapter 1. In the Black Bibles, that's page 731. And if you have one of the Gold Bibles, that's page 499. And I'd invite you to follow along as I read, and I hope this will be on the screen behind me as well. Beginning in verse 39, this is God's word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name." And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the reminder, even as we were singing, that you are good. You are a good God. You are a father to those who trust you, a father to those who fear you. You are a God who shows mercy. You are a God who makes strong those who are weak. You are a God who lifts up those who are downcast. You are a God who draws near. And what we need more than anything this morning is your nearness. I need your nearness. God, I'm so, I'm so aware I'm aware every week, but especially this morning, of just how weak what I have to bring is. Your message, your word, should be preached by angel tongues, and you have called humans to do it. And I'm so aware, God, that if you don't come and work, that I will have nothing to, to say to these people that I love and the people that you love. And so I ask that you would come by your spirit, help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this, this passage contains what you might call the first Christmas carol. The first song that tries to put into words what, what it means that Jesus has come. It's Mary's song. If you were here last week, you remember that the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, who was a, a working class girl from a blue collar town. 
Not the kind of person who expects to have an angel come and visit her. An angel, the angel came to her and said that she would be the mother of the long-awaited king, of the Messiah. And, and he wouldn't just be any, any other king, any kind of king, just a normal run-of-the-mill king, as if kings are run-of-the-mill. He would be God's own son. He's not going to be the son of Joseph, to whom she's engaged to be married. He's going to be the son of God. The baby in her womb is a king who is both truly God and truly man. And Luke records no real emotional response on Mary's part to this. Now, don't get me wrong. Mary responds wonderfully to it. She hears this. She knows what it's going to cost her to be an unwed mother in her community. She knows it could cost her her whole future, could cost her her marriage. She knows what it's going to cost her, and she says to the angel anyway, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She believes, and she submits but there's no, there's no emotional reaction that she has. But then, the angel has told her she's not the only one God has favored. That God has also shown favor to her relative Elizabeth. Elizabeth is, she is, she's barren, the Bible tells us. She wasn't able to have kids and now she's past the age where she could have kids. And the angel tells Mary she's six months pregnant. She's going to have a miracle baby too, who's going to grow up to be John the Baptist. And so Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, and when she gets there, she doesn't even have a chance to tell Elizabeth what's happened to her, because as soon as she comes through the door, as soon as her greeting reaches Elizabeth's ears, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps, which, which had to be painful. Okay, my wife is pregnant. If that baby leaped, I mean, just a little kick is pretty painful. A leap, that would be alarming, but that's not, she cries out, and it's not from pain, it's from the Holy Spirit filling her, giving her a flash of insight into what it means that, that Mary has come, into what's happening in Mary's life. And Elizabeth says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And when Mary heard this, Kind of all the pieces fell into place for her. So it, it would have been a long walk for Mary coming from Nazareth to the hill country of Judah, which is where Elizabeth lived. It would have taken her days. And as she was walking, you can think she would just be rolling over in her mind what it was that the angel had said to her. And she'd be thinking about scripture, about God's word. What, what insight could that give? How could that help her understand what could possibly, what's happening in her life? And then she comes into Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth, without even being told, pronounces this blessing on her, tells her what's happening to you is so great that this baby is just leaping for joy, and it just, it all comes together for Mary. Her heart just wells up, right? Elizabeth's rejoicing. Elizabeth is saying, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This is amazing. And John is rejoicing. He's jumping in the womb, and it just, all of it comes together for Mary. It just wells up in her heart. It just overflows into poetry, into a song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She rejoices. Joy is something we particularly associate with Christmas, isn't it? Joy to the world. Tidings of comfort and joy. But joy is also something of which there often seems to be precious little in the world. Joy is a deep abiding gladness that transcends circumstance. 
Now, we, we know happiness that comes and goes. We know happiness that comes with circumstances, right? We know the happiness of starting a new relationship or the happiness that comes from a Christmas bonus. We know the happiness that comes from setting a personal best or winning the tournament, and those are fine. But joy, real joy, it doesn't ebb and flow quite so much. It transcends circumstance. Mary has it, and Mary, for all she knows, might be on the verge of losing her whole future. Her family might shun her for coming, turning up pregnant before she's married. Joseph might leave her. What if, what if that happens? How will she provide for the baby? There are so many things Mary doesn't know. Her circumstances are not ideal, but she can still sing about the goodness of God. That's joy. That's real joy. Do we have that? Those of us who are Christians, we know we're, we know we're supposed to rejoice, right? Rejoice always, the Apostle Paul tells us. Count it all joy when you encounter sufferings of many kinds, James tells us. We, we know that we should have this kind of joy, abiding joy, even when the prognosis is bleak, when we can't find work, when the kids are making decisions that grieve us. We know we should have it, but do we? Do we have joy? When we gather on Sunday mornings and we sing, are we singing out of the joy of our hearts or are we just singing because that's what we do? I don't like my answer to those questions probably any better than you do. And so we want to know where Mary got it. Where did it come from? What was the, what was the fountain of her Christmas joy? Her joy is found in this word that appears twice in her song. It appears in verse 50. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And she says it again in verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Mary's joy is found in the mercy of God. And we want to let Mary be our teacher this morning. We want to learn from her how we can have this kind of joy that she has. And so Mary sings of three aspects of God's mercy. His personal mercy, his global mercy, and the proof of his mercy. So we want to start first with the personal mercy of salvation. Mary starts her song by reflecting on God's mercy to her personally as an individual. Look at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now, all, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary is amazed at the distance between who she is and what God has done for her. She says, I'm, I'm a person of humble estate. I'm, I'm just a poor girl. There's nothing special about me. I'm nobody. And yet God has chosen me. I'm nobody, but people are going to be calling me blessed for generations. They're going to be preaching about me in the Cayman Islands 2,000 years from now, and I'm just, I'm just a poor girl from Nazareth. She's amazed that God has shown her such favor that she would be the mother of his son, but there's something more she's rejoicing in. She's not just rejoicing that she's going to have a baby or that it's going to be a special baby. Look at verse 46 again. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She's not just amazed that, that she's going to have the, she's going to be the mother of Jesus. She's amazed that she's going to get to be saved by him. Because Mary knows two things very deeply. She must. She must know that she's a sinner. She must know that she has fallen short of what she should be. 
she must know that because if she, if she was perfect, if she thought she was perfect, it wouldn't mean anything to her that God was her Savior. She wouldn't rejoice in that. She must know that she needs to be forgiven. That's the first thing that she knows. And the second thing she knows is that she is loved and favored by God. Isn't that what the angel said? If you look back at verse 28, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And he says it again in verse 30. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So Mary knows that she has fallen short. She's not perfect. She doesn't deserve anything from God. But she also knows that he has shown her favor, that he loves her. She's a recipient of grace. She knows that the baby in her womb is coming to save. His name means the Lord saves, and she knows that she needs it. She knows that it's for her, and she rejoices. Joy is proportional to the distance between what you think you deserve and what God shows you. So if you think that you're pretty good, you think, on the whole, I'm really kind of, I'm knocking life out of the park here. I, I know I'm not perfect, but really, when I compare myself to the people around me, I'm doing pretty well. And someone says to you, God has sent his son to forgive all sin. You'll think, well, that's nice. That's a little something just to kind of get me across the finish line. It's a little boost up. That's, I'm so thankful that you told me that. But if you know that you're a mess, that you fall short with your words and you fall short with your desires, you fall short in your relationships, that you're just falling apart and you realize God still loves and accepts you and even treasures you, that's going to lead to joy. Now, during, during Jesus' ministry, there was a time when he went to a dinner party hosted at the house of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee didn't treat Jesus with any kind of special honor. He didn't offer him water to wash his feet when he came in. He didn't greet him with a kiss. He didn't give him any oil from his head. Those are ways to show you really honor a guest in your home. And the Pharisee didn't do any of it. But uh, while they were having dinner, a, a woman came into the, into the room and she was a notoriously sinful woman. I mean, she was a woman with not just a checkered past, like a, just a straight black past. And everyone knew it. And she came into the room and she stood behind Jesus and she just started to weep. I mean, just tears running down her face to the point that they, they began to, to fall onto Jesus' feet. And she, she washed his feet with her tears. And she kissed his feet. And she, she anointed his feet with this incredibly expensive ointment. Just this elaborate display of affection. And Jesus told this story to the people who were there to, to, show, to explain why it was that this Pharisee had treated him with, with no honor, and this woman had treated him with extravagant honor. And he said, imagine a man has two debtors, and one of them owes him $50,000, and one of them owes him $5,000. And he forgives the debts of both. Who's going to love him more? And the, the host, the Pharisee, says, well, I suppose the one will love him more who owed him the greater debt. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. That's why she loves me so much more than you do. You think you're pretty good, and so it doesn't mean anything to you for me to give you favor. Even if you thought you needed forgiveness, it wouldn't make a difference to you. But this woman knows that she has no hope apart from mercy, and I have shown it to her, and she can't stop crying because of her joy. Joy is proportional to the distance between what we think we deserve and what God shows us. Do you know really how much you need forgiveness. 
that every moment when you don't love God more than everything in your life just increases your guilt before him. That, that in every encounter, when you choose to please yourself instead of serving the person you're encountering, that, that is a, it's a breaking of God's law. We're all guilty before God. We deserve his judgment, and yet he offers salvation by grace. We don't earn it by obedience. We don't atone for ourselves through penance. We receive it as a gift. Look here in verse 50. What does he say? He says, or Mary says, and his mercy is for those who fear him. What does it mean to fear God? It means to come to him in humility. It means to treat him with seriousness, to take him seriously, to see that he's the creator of the universe, that he's the most beautiful and worthy being in existence, that we owe him everything. And to fear him is to come before him in humility and say, you deserve unending praise, and I haven't given it. You deserve total obedience, and I haven't done it. You could condemn me, but you have said that you are a compassionate, merciful, forgiving God. You sent your son for sinners. Forgive me, not because of what I've done, but because of what you've done, because of who you are. God's mercy isn't for the perfect. If they existed, they wouldn't need it. His mercy is for those who fear him, who take seriously his holiness, who take seriously their sin, but who take really seriously his mercy and his love and his goodness. His mercy is for the humble. Salvation comes by grace. It's a gift. And those who receive it that way can sing like Mary. They can say, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. If you think you're pretty good, you can't sing like that. That's for those who know they don't deserve anything from God and realize that in his goodness he's provided it all. Can you say that? The Apostle Paul says of Jesus, he loved me and gave himself for me. Mary says, I rejoice in God my Savior. We talk at Christmas about Jesus coming into the world for the world, that, that God sent the Savior of the world. But can you say, Jesus came into the world for me? He came for me. If you can't say that, know that he offers it to all. He offers it to you. Ask him to forgive you and make you new. It's what he loves to do. Mary rejoices in the personal mercy of salvation, but her song isn't just about what the coming of Jesus means for her. It's also about what it means for the world. So let's look secondly at the global mercy of God's kingdom. God's people, they weren't just waiting for the Messiah to come and forgive their sins, to take care of kind of the individual effects of sin. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and heal the world of all the effects of sin, all the effects of the curse, everything that's gone wrong since Adam and Eve took the fruit and ate it. They were waiting for him to restore the world to what it always should have been. When Adam and Eve sinned, into the world came violence and injustice and war and hunger and, and poverty and conflict, and broken families, illness and death. The world is broken. It's frustrated. And God's people were waiting for the king to come and bring lasting healing and peace to the world. And Mary knows that with Jesus on the way, the time has begun. God's kingdom is breaking in to right what's wrong, to heal what's broken. 
And that's part of her joy. She knows that this is the beginning of the end. And she anticipates this with such confidence that she sings about it as though it's already happened. Look at verse 51. She says, He has. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. She's saying, this child that I'm going to have, this king, he's going to show God's mercy to the world by correcting all injustice. Those who have, in pride, who have used their power, who have used their wealth to enrich themselves, to get more power for themselves, to, to make their life good while neglecting or exploiting the poor, those who have, no, who have no money, who have no power, those who have enriched themselves at the expense of the poor, Jesus is going to flip it. He's going to reverse it. He's going to send the rich away empty. He's going to fill the poor with good things. He's going to bring down the mighty. He's going to raise up the humble. The kingdom is coming. And, and keep in mind that Mary's singing this. She's part of an oppressed people, right? She's not singing this as someone living in the Cayman Islands in, in 2018. She's singing this as a first century Jew. And she, her people have been under foreign occupation for centuries. Just one empire after another. The Romans have the money. The Romans have the power. The Jews just have what they can scrape by on. And she's saying, oh, but a change is going to come. Their days are numbered. Jesus is going to change this. Those who have had plenty while we scraped by, soon they're going to go without. A change is going to come. And there are Christians through history and around the world today who could enter into the song without trouble because they're the people who are under injustice. Think, think how encouraging this would be to a Christian in Saudi Arabia or Sudan where conversion to Christianity is punishable by death. Or the Maldives, where if you convert to Christianity, you lose your citizenship. Or, or think of a place like North Korea, where identifying as a Christian could land you in a labor camp. Or worse, think what it would be for them to read these words and think, yes, a change is going to come. The mighty will be brought down, and those of humble estate will be raised up. This isn't going to last forever. Or think of the millions of Christians in nations where Christians aren't persecuted, but they're kept poor through government corruption. And they can sing, oh, a change is going to come. God's going to bring down the mighty and the rich. Things won't always be this way. But how can we enter into this song? Because relative to our region, Cayman is an affluent place, right? There's poverty here, but relative to the Caribbean, we're doing okay. And relative to Cayman, this is an affluent church. Not all of us, not all of us are doing great right now. Some of us are really having trouble. But as a congregation overall, we have a lot. So how can we enter into this part of Mary's song? Well, we can rejoice in the broad kingdom coming. We can rejoice in all the reversal that's going to happen, in, in the rolling back of sin and death, the healing of our bodies. That's all good. We can rejoice with our brothers and sisters around the world who are under injustice that a change is going to come for them. But this song also gives us a responsibility. Because if the coming of the kingdom means the poor are cared for and filled with good things, and if the kingdom has begun with the arrival of Jesus, and if we are in the kingdom by receiving God's grace, then we shouldn't wait for the end to see justice done. We should be asking God to use us to do it now. 
We looked this past fall at Luke's account of the first church, the church in Jerusalem. So on the day of Pentecost, you remember Peter got up, he preached the gospel. 3,000 people trusted in Jesus, were saved, were gathered into the first church. And, and Luke gives us this account in Acts chapter 2 of, of what their life together was like. And one of the things that you notice is as soon as they became Christians, they started sharing their possessions with one another. Not, not until everybody had the same, but until everybody had enough. Trusting in Jesus, being saved by grace, immediately changed the way they related to money and possessions. They saw that what they had was not, it was God's provision, but not just for themselves, not just for their families, but for his people, for the church. And later in Luke's gospel, Jesus will encounter a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector, okay? He was a Jew, he was a Jewish person, but he was a collaborator with the Romans. He worked for the Romans to collect their taxes, so, which made him an enemy of his people, and he would take more than he needed. So he, you know, the Romans would say, you need to collect this much, and he would add a little something to it, collect that much, and he would pocket the difference. It made him a really rich person. But Jesus came to him, and he got saved by grace. He knew he needed forgiveness. He knew he wasn't okay. He met Jesus, he encountered his love, and he was transformed. And in the moment, in the same day that Zacchaeus became a Christian, he gave away half of his possessions to the poor, and he restored fourfold everything he'd taken by fraud. Because being saved by grace changes the way you relate to money. God's kingdom will not come in its fullness until Jesus returns, but it's begun now. And if we rejoice that the kingdom means the poor are cared for, then we need to be caring for the poor. We should, we should as a church, know one another enough to know who's in need, and we should love one another enough to give until the need is met. God so loved, he gave. And so we should love and give like him. But... What we experience as a church, even if we do that well, that's only the beginning of the kingdom. The fullness, the healing of the world is still to come. We've been waiting for it for 2,000 years since Jesus lived and died in Rome. So how can we know that it will come? How can we know that, that the world will be healed, that all rights will be wronged, that our bodies will be made new? How can we know that the fullness of mercy is coming? We need to see the last aspect in which Mary rejoices, which is the proof of his mercy in promises kept. The proof of God's mercy is that he's made promises and he always keeps his promises. Look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's saying that this child, this child that I'm carrying, this child coming into the world, this is God keeping a promise that's 2,000 years old, a promise of mercy he made to Abraham and has been reminding our fathers of ever since. The promise actually began even before Abraham. On the day that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, on the day when the world fell, God said that he would send someone into the world. Uh, he calls him a son of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush the head of Satan. Mercy was coming. And to Abraham, he promised that the snake crusher would come through his family, that someone would come through his family who would bring God's mercy to the whole world, to all the families of the earth, he says. And he repeated that promise to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob. And Jacob prophesied at the end of his life that the king, 
to come, the snake crusher would be a king who would come through the tribe of Judah. And then later, a king was brought up from the tribe of Judah, right? David. But David wasn't the one to come. And God made a promise to David that the king to come, the king who would bring God's mercy, the king who would crush the serpent, he was still to come, but he would come from David's line. And the prophets of the Old Testament repeated this promise over and over, and they painted this picture of the one who was to come, the one who would bring God's mercy to the world, the one who would finally roll back all the darkness. Isaiah spoke about him. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Micah spoke about him. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Zechariah spoke about him. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And the people kept having to trust over thousands of years. The king is still coming. He's still going to come. The king is coming to bring God's mercy. The king is coming to save. And Mary's soul and her spirit are just bursting with praise because God has kept his promise. He promised a king and he sent one. He promised mercy and it's here. And we're still waiting for the fullness of God's mercy. The world is not what it should be. And we are not what we should be. We're still waiting for the king to come again. But God has proven his mercy in keeping his promise the first time. He promised that Jesus would come, and he did. In the 2,000 years from Abraham to Mary, God did not forget his promise. He did not forget his mercy. And in the 2,000 years from Mary to us, God has still not forgotten He sent his son once, and he will send him again. He will be faithful. So on days when we are overwhelmed by an awareness of our sin, of all the ways we fall short, we can say, God has promised perfect forgiveness to everyone who believes, and God keeps his promises. And on days when our bodies are groaning with illness or wasting away, even on our deathbed, we can say, God has promised me a body free from sickness and death, and God keeps his promises. And on days when when our hearts ache at the injustice and brokenness of the world, we can say God has promised to heal all hurts, to scatter the proud, and to care for the poor. And God keeps his promises. He has promised that he will show us mercy. He will remember his mercy, and he's proven it by sending his son. But he's given us a still greater proof of that, a greater proof of his mercy, a proof that even Mary was only beginning to glimpse. We can be sure that he will show us all the mercy he's promised because of what he paid to secure it for us, because he gave his son's life to be sure that it would come. When God promised that the son of the woman would crush the snake, when he promised that the son of Abraham would bless the nations, when he promised that the son of David would reign forever over a perfect creation, he knew that the only way he could keep that promise was through the death of his son, and he made it. Paul says in Colossians, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood 
of his cross, the way God reconciled all things to himself, the way God is making everything right again, the only way he could do it was through sending his son to die. And he did it. That's his love. The only way for God to forgive our sins was for his son to bear them. The only way for the world to have his blessing was for his son to bear the curse. In order to show mercy to his people, he had to one day show no mercy to his son. And he did. That's the ultimate proof of his mercy. Can you see what it costs God to be merciful to you? That's how much he loves us. That's how committed he is to his promise. If he gave his son's life to secure mercy for you, do you think any part of it is going to fail? Will he fail to forgive every sin and one day rid you of sin entirely? No. Will he fail to give you a new body free from sickness and death? Will he fail to renew this world and bring perfect justice and permanent peace? No. God remembers his mercy. God keeps his promises. He who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, Paul says. Do you know this? Do you know this? Can you say, this merciful God who keeps all of his promises is my God? This God is my Savior. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? If you can't, ask God to make this true of you. And if you can, if you know that Jesus came into the world for sinners, he came into the world for you, then let's magnify him from our souls and rejoice in him with our spirits. Let's pray. Our Father, we don't want to rush by. We want to remember your mercy, that you had this plan from eternity past to forgive our sins, to renew the world, to make everything the way it should be, and that in your plan, you were going to give your son's life for us and for the world, and you did it because of your love, because you are good. Not because we're deserving, not because we've done the right things, but because you love us. You have compassion. You show mercy. You are good. And thank you that because Jesus died, we don't have to worry that any of your promises will fail that you will abandon us, that you will just give up the project, that you will go start new somewhere else. You are committed to us. You have given your son's life to show it. And so we rejoice in you. Help us rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.